All right, good morning. Well, please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And we'll be starting with verse 9 and going through verse 20 this morning. Romans 3, starting with verse 9. I'll be reading today from the ESV, English Standard Version of the Bible. And today's title of our message is Shut Up. I admit, it's a little playful. The title comes off, well, as a command. But it really comes from verse 19, which we're about to read in a few moments, which says this, So that every mouth may be stopped, i.e., shut up. So, with that in mind, let's turn now, let me read the Word of God. Romans 3, verse 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let us pray. Well, Lord, thank you for the wisdom of your word. Lord, it is good. May we receive it as your wisdom and goodness to us here this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I have learned the hard way about making sweeping universal declaration or statements, especially when it pertains to my marriage or in parenting. How many times have you either said or heard these words? You are never on time. Never? Never ever? Really? You are always making a mess. I say that now and I still believe it when I'm talking to a couple of my children. Always? How about this one? You always have to have the last word. <laughs> oh my. I don't know about you, but in my household, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. These universal sweeping statements. 
They're unwise. They're really unfair. And a lot of times, they're just hurtful in marriage and parenting and any relationship. Yet, the Bible, right here in Romans 3, which we just read, we find that God is not a bit hesitant or reticent to make such sweeping, universal statements. We just read them. Verse 9. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Really? Not even one? I just go to you. Just, that was just the first four verses. I, I read that church and I think, what's up with this? I mean, is, is Paul just having like a really bad day? He got a little burr under his saddle? I mean, it appears in one sense he's just getting a little hysterical here and making such bold statements. See, I want to suggest this morning that Paul is not getting hysterical in these verses. He's actually getting historical, and he's getting scriptural. Here in our passage, Paul marshals a collection of about seven Old Testament quotations, found in verses 10 through 18 in Romans 3, to support his summary statement, found in verse 10, which is this. None is righteous. No, not one. That is, no one by nature is right with God. No one by nature is in a right relationship with the Holy God. We all stand under judgment and sin as opposed to grace. You see, Paul here isn't picking a fight. God is saying through the Apostle Paul, who's the author here, human author of Romans, he's saying this, the fight's over. You've lost. I've lost. We've all lost. You and I have lost the fight in establishing our goodness and righteousness before God. We have been tried and found wanting. We stand defenseless, speechless, silenced, shut up in God's court of law. So that according to verse 19, the really climax of our passage, every mouth may be stopped, shut up, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What we have in our passage today is a universal guilty verdict. Last week, Al spoke about our indictment, the indictment of our sin. This week, it's the gavel. It's the resounding verdict of our guiltiness before God. But I want you to hear this as well. This passage this morning, it's a gift. It is a gift from God. These universal statements we just read are not meant to be hurtful, except for your pride. They're actually meant to be helpful, intended for our good. You see, sometimes we just need someone to tell us. You know those accusations? Yeah, they stick. You know what? 
they're true. You've lost. But then we need that same person to come by our side, put their arms around us, and say, you know what? You've lost. But Christ has won. That is Romans 3. We're getting to the victory part. Now it's coming next week. We'll be preaching on Romans 3, 21 to 31. But in our war against sin and the enemy, we must first admit defeat before we can claim victory and our acquittal. In other words, we must be completely convinced of our own unrighteousness in order to receive and live in the good of Christ's perfect righteousness. Sometimes I wonder, am I really convinced? Are you? Let me just say this. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that is, you have placed your saving trust in Jesus Christ, you've been released from the power of sin and the guilty verdict it demands. While sin remains, you do no longer stand condemned. You are righteous, not because of your works, but because of the perfect work and pardon of Jesus Christ. But the question for you and me remains, am I really living in the good of Christ's perfect righteousness? Or am I still, even all these years later, still clinging to my perceived righteousness and goodness, trying to convince you, trying to convince myself that I really am good apart from Christ? Church once saved, let us not engage in revisionist history. We need Romans 3 today. Not because it defines us as believers, but because without it, we lose sight of God's grace, which we've just sung about. Eventually, if we deny our sickness and mortality, we will reject the healing balm. Deny that we ever lost the fight, and we will never live in the victory that Christ has won for us in his perfect righteousness. But I also want to say this to those this morning, who've not yet placed their saving trust and faith in Christ. Can I just say, first of all, I am so glad that you are here this morning. And I have been praying for you, even as I have prepared this message. And my hope is this, that you would see this message as God's kindness to you. See, what is being described right here that I just read in Romans 3? This is your present reality. It does define you. And in a world of spin, this is the straight talk that you need. You see, you can try to spin it. You can try to make things look better than they really are. But you can't change it. Only Christ can do that. But please hear this. This message is not about You coming here this morning and me trying to work you up in a lather and make you feel really bad. No more than a doctor's MRI is intended to make you feel bad. It's intended to give you a proper diagnosis and to see at times the desperate situation that you're in and your need for Christ. And that desperate situation is found in verse 9. And it really serves as my first point this morning. 
It's the longest point of this message. If we get traction on this one point, points two and three will naturally flow. So point number one, our universal bondage of sin, that we are all under sin. Verse nine states that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words, the problem is not just that we commit sin, but that we are enslaved to sin. In other words, it is your taskmaster. We're under it. We're in bondage to it. It has a grip on us. It has us in that full Nelson, and we cannot extract ourselves. That is what he's saying when he says we are under sin. But furthermore, we're also legally under sin in the sense that we are all condemned. By nature, we're in the same boat. To use the common vernacular, some people are not more lost than others. There's no degree of lostness. We're all lost, and we all stand legally condemned in our sin, apart from Christ. I don't know, but maybe you struggle with that point. But you know what? So do the Jews, to whom Paul is primarily writing in this text. We see in verse 9 these words. What then? Are we... The English translation provides the word Jews. I think that's appropriate. Are we Jews any better off? Or in other translations, like the New American Standard, then what advantage has the Jew? Well, after Paul, after all, Paul had just said in, in chapter 3, verse 1, that, well, the Jews indeed had an advantage. Redemptive, historically speaking, that is, they had received the oracles and the promises of God. In other words, the Jews had received the Old Testament, the Bible, the very words of God. Yet, the statement that he made is this. Jews, you may have the word of God. You may be very knowledgeable about this word. But it is no advantage to you in the day of judgment. They too, as Jews, were still under sin and not exempt from God's judgment, as we'll see. And church, neither are we. No matter how well you may know your Bibles, no matter how long you've been in these seats or participated in church life for these many years, none of us were born with a get-out-of-free, get-out-of-jail free card. You ever play Monopoly? Yeah, there's one card you really want to keep, isn't it? It's the get-out-of-jail-free card. Whenever you land on that square with that, I don't mind, I, I, the vintage one, you know, the blue policeman with the little whistle, whenever you land on that square, go immediately to jail, right? Or you get that chance card that says, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect $200. But what do you do if you get that? Well, if you have a get out of jail free card, presto, you get one of these bad boys right here, you flash it. And you are sprung from jail. The sentence no longer applies. It's the get out of jail free card. See what Paul's doing here in verse 9? He's taken away this card from the Jews. He's taken it away. He's taken away the card that we're all prone to play. What's this card? It's in your mind, whatever perceived advantage that you have or you think you have, that you play in your mind that exempts you from this statement and this accusation of sin in verses 9 through 
20. Anything that puts you in your mind in a different category than that person or those sinners. You see, in our pride, we want to be the exception, not the rule when it comes to sin. We want to place ourselves, don't we, in a different category. We don't want to be lumped together with all those evil people that we despise, that we hear about on the news, or we read about in history. No, not them. Just that the Jews didn't want to be lumped together with the Gentiles. But church, God will not let us play that card. He will not let us escape the verdict of our sinfulness and condemnation apart from Christ. Thus we read in verse 10 these words, None is righteous. No, not one. No way, no how. We are all brought to the precipice of sin and the inescapable conclusion. We are all under sin and do not possess enough goodness to ever earn or win God's approval in his court of law. If you understand this, if you believe this, you know what? How the gospel of Jesus Christ will have traction in your life. You begin to see that you desperately need what is sometimes referred to as an alien righteousness. In other words, meaning what you need, you don't got. Pardon the grammar, moms. In other words, it's a righteousness that you do not possess. It is outside of you. It is foreign to you in the flesh. In other words, you know that you know that you know that you need Christ and his righteousness and his pardon, his forgiveness. The following verses verses 11 and 12, only serve to illustrate this very point from select Old Testament quotations. We read in verses 11 and 12, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. All of these sweeping statements, all these quotations are there to bring you to this one conclusion. You need God's righteousness because you do not have it. Firstly, no one understands. That is, no one understands God's truth. Being under sin means that we live in the dark. Ephesians 4.18 speaks of those under sin in the following way. Let me just read it to you. Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Scripture's clear. A hard heart is the ultimate reason for a lack of understanding of God, His truth, His ways. It's our sinful hearts which lead us to filter out Reality, just still a phrase from Tim Keller. It's why a really smart guy with a funky bow tie and an advanced science degree can be an evolutionist and claim there is no God and claim that he's being completely rational. It's why a politician could leave his wife and children 
and enter into an adulterous affair and think he will go unscathed, privately, publicly, politically, and before God. You see, apart from God, softening our hardened hearts, illuminating our minds, and opening our eyes, we will not understand God and his ways. We will not be righteous. And neither will we seek God. For we read in verse 11, no one seeks for God. Really? No one? Maybe you read that and you say, I want to cry foul right there, okay? Okay. I sought God. I found him. Well, I'm glad that you found him. The scripture is clear. God graciously sought you first and foremost. We read in John 6, verse 44, these words. No one, there's that statement again, no one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who has sent me draws him. I think what we often call seeking for God is something actually quite different than what's meant in Scripture. I mean, there's no denying in one sense that many people seek God in the sense of at least they're seeking His blessing, seeking His answered prayer. As a man might do in a foxhole, yes, I believe that does exist. But we so often seek God, really and ultimately, for what He can give us. We're not really seeking him to follow him, not seeking him to worship him. We're not seeking him to be satisfied in him. That's what I believe it means to seek for God. And that's something we'll never do apart from God changing our hardened hearts. Under sin, we're going to run from God. We're not going to seek him. And we surely won't be righteous in his eyes. And that leads to verse 12. And perhaps this is the most difficult of all to swallow of all these statements. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Listen to this. No one does good. Not even one. Not one person does good. Come on. You and I know unbelievers who use their time, their money, and their talents to improve their cities, to help their fellow man. Before you became a believer, I'm sure you did many things that others considered good, that you would be considered good. Well, perhaps Bible teacher Charles Spurgeon can help us by telling us a little story. Let me read. Once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, Here, my son, I want to give you some of my land, so that you can produce an even greater crop. It is yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, If this is what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came and presented the prince with a fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, You expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener. I will not. You are very different. The gardener gave me the carrot, 
but you were giving yourself the horse. How many times have you gifted yourself when doing a good work for someone else? You've heard of re-gifting, right? How about self-gifting? How many times have you given away the horse, so to speak, for the purpose or hope of receiving a ranch? Listen to Kim Teller's, Kim, excuse me, Tim Keller's comments on this passage. We're going to put them on the slide for you. He says this, If you know God loves you in Christ, and that there is nothing you can do or need to do but accept his perfect righteousness, then you can feed the hungry, visit the sick, and clothe the naked, and all of it will be done as a gift to God. But if you think you are going to get or keep your salvation by doing these good deeds, it is really yourself you are feeding, yourself you are clothing, yourself you are visiting. It is who we are serving in our hearts that matters, not how we are serving with our hands. Without faith in Christ, good deeds are not truly done for God, but for ourselves, and thus are not truly good. If that's not enough to convince you of your unrighteousness apart from God and your need for his perfect alien righteousness, then Paul goes for the, the knockout punch. He goes for the body slam in the following verses, 13 and 17. Quoting primarily from the select Psalms, he applies the description of, that, of the unrighteous to all those under sin. We read, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of an asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Not only is each one of us born under sin, each part of us is affected by sin. Our throat in this text, our tongue, our mouth, our feet. There's a theological word for this. It's called total depravity. Total depravity. Total meaning every part of us is affected by sin. You see, I come up here this morning. I truly want to bless you. I want to do a good work. I want God's word to speak to you. And I'm trusting that God will convict hearts He's going to pour out hope. And that he may even save some of you this morning. I truly desire that up here this morning. But you know what? I got another soundtrack playing back. It's, a, it's much more embarrassing. I get up here and I'm thinking, man, I haven't been up here in a couple months. Man, I don't get too many shots to make an impression, you know? Some of you, you've never even heard me preach before. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, you know, I really want to oppress them. I really want them to think well of me. That's going on. It's going on. It's ugly. Now, I want to do good work. I really do. But I got this plan. Just the other day, you know, someone came up to me and they're just talking about a, 
a preacher and just his great message and, and how humorous it was? You know what I immediately thought? Man, this message is not humorous. Who gave me Romans 3, 9 through 20 anyway? I mean, man, all this talk about sin, I thought, but I thought, does it even matter? I'm not even funny anyway. I've never been funny. You know, it's like, I don't get a shot here to impress anyone. It's like a depressing thought. I mean, all that's going back in my head. Lord bless them. Impress them, you know, back and forth, you know. And guys, that's not a good day. What's being described here? It's me before, when I was under sin. That's a really bad day. Those thoughts, unhindered. Where does it leave us? Well, it leaves us here, we just read. Oh, at least it's a venomous speech. Destructive behavior and ruined relationships. And no peace. You see, we don't have to probe too far in our lives, do we? To, let alone in human history, to prove that these verses are indeed true. Now, we may not be guilty of shedding blood. But you know what? In our hearts, we surely are. And where does all this violence come from anyway? That's from our hearts. Notice the progression here in these verses. From the heart. Up from the throat. It's kind of gross. It's kind of like bile. Up from the throat to the tongue to the lips. Even to the feet. Church, we are totally depraved. We are born in sin, under sin. And it affects all parts of us. Well, verse 18 sums it up quite nicely. For those who are under sin, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In the devotional commentary of Ray Ortland Jr. on Romans, he offers this sobering confession in prayer. He says this, I do not fear you. I treat you as if your promises were cheap and your threats were empty. Promises are cheap and your threats are empty. Is that how you treat God? And you may not dare to say it that way verbally, but you know what? You act as if God's judgment will not happen. Or if it does, okay, maybe it'll happen, but you know what? On that day, I'll have the words to equip myself, right? I'll have the works to back me up. You assume or you naively hope that you will have a get-out-of-jail-free card to wave before the mighty magistrate. That's you. You have no fear of God. God kindly puts an end to all that nonsense in verse 19, leading to our second point, universal silence. Every mouth may be stopped. Let me read it for you again. Set your eyes upon it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Knowing the propensity of the Jews to excuse themselves and throw in the get-out-of-jail-free card, Paul addresses them in this verse to the Jews as those who are, quote, under the law. I believe when he refers to the law, he's speaking about the whole 
Old Testament, their scriptures, which Paul had just quoted from in Ecclesiastes, in Psalms, in Isaiah, and in Proverbs. Paul, inspired by God, it's God's word speaking through Paul, is applying these very verses to the Jews and saying, and saying, even among you Jews, you who have the word of God, even among you are the unrighteous, as shown by these quotations. You are not morally better or superior to the nations around you. You have no excuse. We've come full circle, haven't we? Back to verse 10. None is righteous. No Jew, Gentile. We're all guilty. None is righteous. No, not one. So we read in verse 19. Every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth. And the whole world may be accountable to God. This imagery is of a courtroom. God is the judge. We are the defendants. And we are speechless before the charges brought against us. Every whining excuse is silence. And we are shut up. And then Paul adds this last dagger of kindness. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Why is this God's kindness to us? You realize here that Paul is speaking primarily to Bible-believing, law-keeping people. He's speaking to you and me. He's speaking to most of us here this morning at Palm Vista. And God wants to make it abundantly clear. No works of the law. That is nothing can we do. There's nothing that we can do to reckon a favorable verdict from God. No good works. Nothing can earn his favor in our acquittal. The law reveals our sin, but it cannot save us from sin. You see, the point of the last couple weeks' sermons is not just that we would become sick of our sin or all the bad and evil things you do. It's to become sick of your own self-righteousness, thus leading you to Christ. Listen to the words we're going to put up on the slide of the famous evangelist, George Whitfield. He says this, You must not only be made sick of your sin, but you must be sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It is the last idol taken out of your heart. It's the last and most difficult idol, this self-righteousness. See, the irony is this. It's often our good works done to curry God's favor, or salvation, I should say, that lead us farther from God rather than to Him and His righteousness. It's our very own self-righteousness. When Jesus walked the earth, he had some choice words, many choice words for the scribes and the Pharisees, those self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. 
And he says this fascinating statement in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. You don't need to turn there, but just, just hear these words. This is Jesus speaking. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's only those who are sick. Only those who are sick in their sin and of their sin and of their self-righteousness who will recognize their need for a doctor. Jesus wasn't saying, hey, there's already some who are righteous apart from me. They just thought they were righteous apart from me. But it's only those who knew they were sick, who knew they needed a doctor, who knew they needed Jesus. Oh, church, I hope it's clear by now. We all need Jesus. We all need his righteousness. But you can only have it by faith if you're willing to admit your sin and unrighteousness and cling to Jesus. All of Romans chapter 1 through 3 has brought us to this point into next week's sermon. But you know what? I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. Thus the final point. Our universal need. Jesus and his righteousness. I want to talk to the unbeliever first who may be here this morning. As we started, so we end. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, is your present reality. But it doesn't have to be. Christ can change that. Perhaps there are, and there have been, perceived get-out-of-jail-free cards that you've been playing your whole life. Perhaps you've blamed your sinful action and behavior on your genes, genetics. It's just the way I am. It's the way my mother and father were. It's the way I will always be. As if that somehow exonerates you from any guilt. Perhaps you blame the way you are on your upbringing. You didn't have a godly or nurturing home. You were neglected or maybe even victimized by the sins of others. Maybe you've blamed your unrighteousness on everyone around you, the society, the blatantly hedonistic culture we live in. Or maybe, just maybe, you've blamed it on the hypocritical church culture that you grew up with. I thought that was for someone here. I, maybe multiple people. You grew up, you grew up going to church. And you saw a lot of Christians, maybe in the pastor, wearing two masks, right? Saying one thing, doing the opposite. At times, even purposely deceiving. Can I say that grieves me? It should grieve each one of us here. Can I tell you, I'm not here to deceive you. By God's grace, I don't think I'm a hypocrite or anyone here who's agreeing with Romans 3, 9 through 20. You know who we are? We're the ones who are racing to the front of the line, the first to say, yes, I'm a sinner. I can do no good apart from Christ. I need Jesus. 
what we're talking about. I'm not here thinking that I'm better than you. I'm better than those out there. In fact, as far as I know, I'm a lot worse. Because God has convicted me and shown me my heart. Show me my depravity and sin and need for him. He's just given me the conviction and the humility and the guts to say it. I need him. Oh, may he give you the same as well this morning. This morning is an opportunity to admit and to confess what I think you know down deep in your heart. You two are a sinner and need of some alien righteousness, goodness that's found apart from you. And it's found in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life which you could not live in your place. Christ Jesus, who died the death that you deserved for your unrighteousness in your place. That you now, even this morning, can come to Jesus. You can admit your sin. So the fancy word for that is confess. Confess means I am agreeing with you, God. I am unrighteousness. I am unrighteous. And I need Christ's pardon. That's forgiveness. And I need his righteousness to be accepted by you. For my works, don't cut it. That can be you today. Your reality can change. Romans 3, 9 through 20, no longer need to define you. You can do that. As I finish here, you can do it in your heart. You can express it in prayer to the Lord. Confess and receive his righteousness. I want you to think about that. And as you do so, I now want to turn and address the believers who are here this morning as well. I want to say this. Believer, you need Christ's righteousness as much as you did the day you first received Christ. In this regard, nothing has changed. Put down this get out of free, get out of jail free card. Get rid of it. Rip it up. You don't need it. You already have one who went not just to jail, but went to the cross to bear the sentence and the punishment for your unrighteousness and to give you his perfect righteousness. You know what that means? You are free now. We are free to admit our sin before others. You know what it also means? That you're free to say, I don't think that is sin before others as well. You may be right. You may be wrong. But you're free. You're free to do really good works. You know what else? You're free to do really bad, stinky works as well in your human weakness and frailty. You're free to go for it. You're free to fail. Why? Because every work is no longer a litmus test of our worth before our Savior. You have nothing to prove, so therefore you have everything to give to God. Friends, if we grasp this truth of our righteousness in Christ's righteousness, you know what happens? This gospel gets traction in your life. It grips you, and you're going to go places. Last Monday, I was in a Ford Explorer with my friend, some of you know him, Todd Augustine, and we were in downtown Chicago. It was snowing heavily. About six inches of fresh snow was falling, and the interstate was buried in snow. But we had to go. We were in a rush to Chicago O'Hare Airport because I wanted to get home. 
But we were in this Ford Explorer, four-wheel drive. You know what? Man, this car had traction. There was no fear there. Even had the heated leather seats. But I digress. But it was cool. We're cruising along the interstate, all four wheels on the ground. We had traction, and we were moving. But what a contrast to the week before. Just a few days prior, we were in a two-wheel drive Chrysler minivan with seven people on the iced over roads in the backwoods of northern Wisconsin. Well, let's just say there was a little less traction and a little less confidence as well. And there was a lot of stopping along the way. What was the difference? Traction. How do you know if the gospel has traction in your life? How do you know if the gospel is functioning in your life and you're not just spinning your wheels? You know what? You may just find yourself saying these words. These aren't mine, but I want you to hear them. It's words that I have said to myself a number of times. We'll put it on the screen. Because Jesus was strong for me, I am free to be weak. Because Jesus won for me, I am free to lose. Because Jesus was someone, I am free to be no one. Because Jesus was extraordinary, I am free to be ordinary. Because Jesus succeeded for me, I am free to fail. And to continue our little monopoly metaphor, because Jesus owns Park Place and Boardwalk, I'm free to own Mediterranean Avenue, baby. Friends, that's gospel traction. Only Christ's righteousness can give you that. The church go now and live in the good and the freedom of Christ's righteousness. Free to obey. Yes, free to do good works. And free to truly live. With that in mind, let's be free to sing as well. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up for one last song. And to sing the song that we sung earlier. That works, Zeke? Are we okay with that, man? <laughs> Is that okay or not? Okay, great. We're going to sing the song completely done. If I have your attention here as we transition during this time, because our service is not yet complete. Church, here's the truth. If you're in Christ, you're no longer under sin, but you have been declared righteous before God. Shh. Righteous before God. It doesn't just mean that God has declared you righteous. It means that he is committed to making you righteous, to you and making you who he claims and declares you to be. So we can sing this last song with confidence that Christ is our righteousness. And because of that, the good work that he has started, he will complete. So let us sing this song now. Let us sing it as if we mean it. And let's mean it and let's believe it that he is our righteousness, and he, in fact, is making us righteous and holy like him. And he's not done yet. Oh, what he started, he will complete. Let us rise, church. Let us sing together this concluding song.